from time to time this year to do what I've called a series that's called uh, Help My Unbelief and talking about some of the things that can be uh, a challenge for faith and threads that are in the scriptures that can be hard to understand. And, and I would say by way of reminder, if there is a, a topic, issue, theme, thread in the scriptures that you are struggling with or challenges your faith or uh, you don't feel like you understand very well, I would love for you to give that to me and I can incorporate it uh, into this series as we do this every once in a while throughout uh, this year. And if you guys give me enough things, we'll make it go into next year too. But uh, I, I think it's useful to uh, address some of the things that can uh, cause us conflicts and challenges uh, to our faith. For this morning, I want to talk about the concept of righteousness because that topic in scripture can be really confusing. Depending upon where you read, you sometimes get a completely different picture. For example, you can have a place like Jesus in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount just simply says, now you've got to be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. Or like First John will say that, uh, let no one deceive you, whoever practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. And so you all need to be righteous and you need to be perfect. But then you go a little bit further in the scriptures and you read, wait a minute, nobody's righteous. You've been told that you need to be righteous and without holiness, you're not going to see God. And then you read other places that say, well, it's not possible for you to be righteous. There is none that is righteous. No, not one. And so how is the Christian supposed to understand these concepts about righteousness, what is God trying to show us? So well, I think one of the things that you might recognize as you think about those two sides is that it is kind of easy to find some group weigh in on one side heavier than the other. And I expect as I go through this lesson, at some point along the way, I'm going to make you uncomfortable because you probably heard one side of these coins more than the other. One side of the coin is you need to be righteous. And if you're not righteous and if you sin, then, then you're done. You're, you're done with God and you're completely cut off. And, and there's no way that you're ever going to have eternity. Or the other side, which is, well, since we can't be righteous, it doesn't matter what we do. We're all fine. We're all good. We're all going to heaven. High fives all around because no one's righteous and we're just resting on Jesus. So don't worry about it. And we need to work with what does that look like? Now, if you know much about history, this has been a historical pendulum. Uh, in the winds of Christianity, you had a long time an argument that the Roman Catholic Church made for, for many, many centuries about uh, it's about works and you need to do to be saved. And then Martin Luther and John Calvin and some others came along and said, wait, 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 where's room for grace? It's not about works. It can't be about that. And so this is not a new problem. This has always been a challenge. And I believe that part of the challenge in understanding righteousness has to come from not catching the thread of what God is doing in scriptures. That often what happens is we will pick and we will jump maybe like to Matthew 5 and say, well, you need to be perfect, and that's the lesson. Or go to a place like Romans 3 and say, no one's righteous, and that's the lesson. 
And so what I want to do for us this, this morning is a little bit different than what I typically do, but I think important is I want to trace the big idea of righteousness as it's threaded through the scriptures. If we're going to understand what God is teaching us about this, then I think the best thing we can do is start at the very beginning where God starts teaching about himself and what righteousness and holiness then ultimately means for the world. To begin the idea, it is a, a pretty simple, straightforward picture that is given to us in those first three chapters of Genesis. And for the sake of time, I can't read all of these places, but some of them I will put up on the screen. But if you've grown up in the pews at all, you know, Adam and Eve, one law. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, we all like to think we could handle one law, but I assure you we couldn't. And we would not be righteous just like them. One law, don't eat from the tree. Now, what is interesting about what happens is both Adam and Eve eat, and it's not a picture of God saying, well, you really shouldn't have done that. That's a shame. There is a major concept where God is able to be with Adam and Eve, walking with them in the garden, but because they sin, now a separation occurs. Because God is holy. And one of the things that the scriptures are constantly trying to drive into our minds is that sin separates us from God. God is light. God is pure. God is holy. God is righteous. God cannot dwell with darkness. He cannot bear evil. And so immediately the picture is shown. Adam and Eve sin, and now immediately their separation. They cannot be together so Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. And so you have in that thread already just putting forward, God is so holy and so righteous. And he wants to be with his people, but his people sin. In fact, one of the pictures that happens in the scriptures as you continue to move forward in what we call the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, is that God gives laws to Moses. And through those laws, God is saying, if you want to be with me, here's what you need to do. Here are my laws. Here are my ways. Be holy like I am holy, as Leviticus proclaims. So here's what you need to do. Just do what God says. You need to be holy. And that way you can be in relationship with him. And if I want you to think about one of the ways God showed this was through his tabernacle and through his temple. Think about the tabernacle. You couldn't just walk up to the tabernacle where God lived. Nor could you walk up to the temple and say, hey, let me just come in and see how things are going and let's worship. Israel was excluded. And what God did is he created a priesthood and they needed to be holy. And they went through ceremonial cleansings just to be able to be put into service to God. But you might remember something that was really unusual. It was an annual occurrence. Is only one time a year, only one individual, the high priest, would make sacrifices for his own sins and make sacrifices for the sins of the people 
and was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God, to be able to make atonement for the people. And it really communicated something. It wasn't that everybody could walk in and say, okay, I need forgiveness. There is still this picture of separation. God cannot be with sin. And yet there's going to be this perfectly clean high priest who's going to come into the very presence of God and make atonement for the people. And this is the picture that is then strewn throughout the scriptures of trying to communicate to us the absolute holiness of God couple of places you see that in the New Testament, like in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal. And then listen to how Paul words this. Who lives in unapproachable light. Isn't that a strange way to say that? You can't get anywhere near him. Whom no one has seen or can't see. God is constantly trying to explain to us, you don't understand how righteous and pure and holy I am. One of the best scenes of that is back in Exodus chapter 19, when God wants to come down and meet his people at Mount Sinai. And God says, I'm going to come down and meet with you. Now you all need to be cleansed and you all need to stand back. Because I'm going to come down on this mountain. And he comes down on that mountain in all of his glory and righteousness. And it says the mountain shook and quaked. And it was the sound like trumpets getting louder and louder and louder. And the people were outright terrified about the holiness of God coming into their presence. Another place you see that is like in Hebrews 12 and verse 14. Where the writer of Hebrews tells us it is not going to be possible for us to see the Lord without holiness. So God is just underscoring, I'm holy, I'm righteous, and if you want to be with me, you need to be holy and be righteous. Now, I want us to think about this idea. Okay, keep God's laws. There you go. That's the end of story. I'm end of sermon. Everybody go home. Be holy. Be righteous. Do what God says. And you can dwell with him forever. All right. Nobody seems excited. Immediately, you start feeling a problem. The problem is, well, if you make me think about all the things that God has said... I need to do and I need to be righteous and holy before him to be able to live with him. I immediately sense the problem. And it's a problem that Paul clearly expresses that as he quotes from Deuteronomy to the Galatians. He says, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book and do them. Now, I want to put my finger on something right here because I think this is really important because sometimes this is where the story stops. Because what we want to typically do is when God tells us, okay, I want you to be holy and I want you to be righteous. What we have the tendency to do then is lower what those standards are and change the definition so that we're doing all right. All right. God says I have to be holy. So I go to church and I don't kill people and I'm a pretty nice guy. So I'm righteous. 
Or come up with your own set of rules. I'm a pretty good person. I don't do an awful lot of bad things. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. And so I'm going to heaven too, right? Because that's righteousness. One of the things that humans have done throughout the ages is try to take God's law and define them in such a way so that it looks like we're all doing just fine. I go to church. We took the Lord's Supper. We've been baptized. We're sorry about our sins. And so therefore we're all okay. And one of the things that you see Jesus doing over and over again is trying to underscore that's not the point of the law. When in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus comes along and starts explaining, here's what God meant by the law. You think righteousness means don't murder, but I say to you, don't be angry with your brother. See, I liked the, the standard of don't murder. Hopefully we can all do high fives all around, haven't murdered anybody today. We're good. Don't be angry. Well, it was a tough drive here today. <laughs> well, uh, you don't know how the morning went. We want to lower the standard so that we're all righteous. Jesus says, you think righteousness is don't commit adultery. But I say to you, righteousness is don't lust in your heart. Oh, well, that's condemning. What you say is don't retaliate. But I say to you, love your enemies and go the extra mile with them. You say, well, just keep your oaths. Make sure you keep all of your vows. Jesus comes along and says, but I say to you, do exactly what you say. Let your yes always be yes and your no always be no. You see what Jesus is constantly doing is taking the law and putting it right back where it belongs. Is we want to come to it and lower it. And we lower it in ways so that what we are doing in our lives right now is justified. And the point that Jesus is doing over and over again is trying to help us see that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or as James said it, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of all the law. We want to read whoever keeps the whole law but is guilty in one point is doing really great and is righteous. I mean, one point. Come on, Lord. One. One point. I got the other 99 points. I mean, that's good, right? Guilty in one point, guilty of the whole law. And so this is the issue. Is how is God going to call for a people to be holy and righteous? Because he's holy and righteous when we are full of sin and are not holy and righteous. Now, the reading was in Romans chapter 4. You still got your Bibles there? Let's, let's look at Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. 
What then shall we say, say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. I want you to hear the picture that is given. Is God says, you need to be righteous and you need to be holy. And the text that, that Paul uses is this. Abraham believed God and it was counted, credited to him. As righteousness. There is an interesting picture that God is developing. We are coming to God and we are unrighteous. We are unholy. We are full of sin, full of darkness. And God is suddenly doing something and he's showing it all the way back in the days of Abraham. Back in the days of Abraham, you are hearing that Abraham believes God. And somehow it's counted to him. As righteousness. Now I want to observe something here. Because you'll notice the Apostle Paul makes a very big deal. About how Abraham was not saved by works. And I think it's useful to clarify something here. That Paul absolutely cannot be saying. Abraham did nothing. And was counted righteous. Just read Genesis. And you will know that Abraham did not do nothing. <laughs> you will read about amazing faith that's on display. In fact, that's the very argument that James makes when he uses the very same illustration about Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled. That says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. I think it is interesting that James says the scripture was fulfilled. The scripture was fulfilled. The scripture was fulfilled that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. How do you fulfill that? I want you to hold that idea in your mind. How was that scripture fulfilled in Abraham believing God? And it was counted to him as righteousness. One of the pictures that we are being taught through Abraham that I think is so difficult for us to get our minds around when it comes to righteousness is that the idea of trusting God is the very opposite of trying to make ourselves right with God by our actions. And sometimes I think we don't get a sense of the problem here. If I'm going to come before God and try to make myself right before him, who am I trusting? Me. 
I'm going to be good enough. I'm going to do enough. There's going to be either a depth of goodness or a long list of goodness or whatever I can come up with. And I'm not trusting in God. I'm trusting in myself. I'm going to be good enough. I'm going to go to church every Sunday. And God's going to keep giving me brownie points on the ledger. And if I get enough brownie points on the list, it's all going to be good. And I'm trusting in myself when I do that. And one of the things that I'm trying to underscore is what Jesus came to do in part of his being on the earth is to try to break our way of thinking about that. We have been studying in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Matthew over the last few Sundays this year. And you keep seeing people come to Jesus trying to figure out what's the good thing I need to do. And you might notice that Jesus keeps breaking them every time they do that. What's the good thing I need to do? And Jesus always finds where the hole is. You never have somebody come up to Jesus and go, what good thing do I need to do? And Jesus goes, keep all the law. And he goes, okay, I did all that. And Jesus says, great, follow me. No, he always finds the flaw. He always finds the hole in the holiness. He always finds the spot. Where there's the weakness. He never accepts that. But tries to get them to see. No you are falling short of that. That what the law would do. Would be to cause us to trust God. And to not trust in ourselves. Let me give an example of that. It's actually not my example. It's Jesus example. You might remember that you have Jesus telling a story about a tax collector and a Pharisee. You remember what the Pharisee's doing in Luke's gospel about that? I'm so glad that I'm not like those people because I fast, I pray, I tithe, I do all kinds of good things And therefore, I am wonderful before you, and I'm trusting in myself. And it's easy to default into that kind of thinking. That rather than trusting God, what we are trying to do is go, if I do certain things, then God is going to be happy enough with me. So let me talk a little bit about how to live righteously because one of God's purposes is to try to break us from trusting in ourselves. I'm going to say it this way because I think I kind of, if it's fair, probably grew up thinking this. That what I need to do is do all of the works that I can possibly do to get as close to God as possible. And if I do all that I can possibly do, then God will take me the rest of the way. And I want us to see there's still a trusting in self of what I'm going to accomplish, of what I'm going to do. And God never says in the scriptures Get as close to me as you can. And if you try hard enough, then maybe, just maybe, you might get there and God will let you in. Let me show you some scriptures of that idea. I love how the Apostle Paul words this. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7, listen to how he says this. He says, 
What other, whatever gain I have. Now, just a reminder, the prior verses in front of that, he's got some righteous gain. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, keeper of the law. He has all kinds of great merits on the sheet. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss. Paul does not say, you know, me being a Pharisee and doing a lot of good deeds and generally being righteous has carried me 80% of the way. And now God is going to bring me the rest of the way. He says, all the gain that I had, I count as trash. It's loss. It's nothing for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now listen to this. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. I want you to think about how what Paul says here is that trusting God means throwing away everything that you trust in for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He says, all of the things I could have relied upon and trusted in, I count them as nothing. Why? Because I want to know and gain Christ. I want to know him. I want to see him. I want to be with him. And so I'm going to give my life fully to him in every way. And by trusting in him, here is Paul saying, we would be counted as righteous. Now, let's spend some time talking about that idea for a minute. And then we'll start putting all this together. One of the things that the scriptures try to show us is that there are two effects that happen when we stop trusting in ourselves and start trusting in God. When we understand our complete sinfulness and see the righteousness of God, two effects that happen with that. Number one, when we truly understand who we are and our inability to make ourselves right before God and we see our utter sinfulness and we grasp the absolute holiness of God, it will make us want to live for him. Let me show you a few places that that say that. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. I want you to think about what he says there. Why should you be a living sacrifice? Why should you present your bodies wholly to God? Why should you live for him in any way whatsoever? Notice the whole motivation is because you see the mercy of God. That's the motivation. The motivation is not, well, if I can be good enough. That's not the motivation. The motivation is I am so overwhelmed by the fact that I am so worthy of judgment. I am worthy of eternity separated from him because of all of my sins. But because of his mercy that is seen through Christ, 
I want to live for him. I want to change my life. I'm going to give you a bunch of these, but not too many because they're all over the place. Ephesians 4 verse 1. Now, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. When you see what you have been called to, when you see what Christ has done for you, there is this desire to walk in that identity, to follow in that purpose. He's done so much for me. How can I not want to live for him? Same thing in Philippians 1, 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. When you understand what he's accomplished, you're going to want to live for him. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden in God. There's not time for this, but please think about how many times God shows, I'm coming to rescue you. And the expectation is because of the rescue, you'll change the way you live. Imagine if it was the other way around. Imagine if God, through Moses, had come to Egypt and told Israel, when you guys get your act together, I will take you out of Egypt. Would they have ever left? (laughs) Still be there. They'd just be like, well, that puts an end to the, change the name not to Exodus because there was no Exodus. The good news is he's saying, I'm going to do something to set you free. And now that this grand exodus has happened, serve me and worship me and love me and follow me because of the great love that I've shown you. And it is a good thing that God does not wait for us to do all the law because that's not going to happen. But what will motivate A life of righteousness and holiness is seeing the outstanding love of God. That he would give his own son while we were still enemies. That God did not up in heaven say, I will send my son as soon as you figure all this out. As soon as you get your life right, then I'll go ahead and send him for you. It would never happen. The power of the gospel is while we were enemies, while we were weak, while we were still sinners, Romans chapter 5, Christ died. And there's something else that's special about what happens when you start truly trusting in God. Is not only are you going to want to live a life for him. I don't know of a better way to say this, but you're not going to be able to help it. Is that fair? This is the point that the Apostle Paul makes in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 when he says, But we with, all, uh, with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Notice this picture. The more you are beholding Christ, the more that you appreciate and see who he is, the more you will be transformed into that same glory. To put it another way, what you focus on is what you become. What you worship is what you become. I'd say that's the sum of Romans 1. Is if you worship the creation, if you worship yourself, you become more like the creation and more self-centered and more wicked and more unholy. 
But the more you focus on God and the more you see him, the more you'll be transformed. It's a stunning picture. And it's why we sing songs like, oh, to be like thee. Not, I'm already like thee. But, oh, to be like thee. The more I look into his beauty, the more I want to be like him. The more that I understand his holiness, my unholiness, and his astounding love, the more I'm going to want to live for him. Let me use one more scripture and then let's sum this idea up. This is the whole point of Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. By grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. No one's going to stand before God and say, well, because I went to church a lot, here I am. Or whatever level you think righteousness is. But notice the rest. We are his workmanship. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. You are being given your identity and purpose. You are being told that the reason that you exist is so that you would walk in these good works and do what God has called you to do, that that is your very purpose. Because he wants for you to be with him. So let me put the pictures together and and hold these two, what shall we say, opposites of the pendulum and put them together in the right place. One, God's righteous and he's holy. And if you want to live with him, you have to be righteous. There's no changing that. He is light and cannot be with darkness at all. The problem is, No one's righteous. No one's holy. And thus the Apostle Paul says something like this. We need a righteousness that's not our own. We need to be counted righteous before God. Well, how is that going to happen? Let me make three simple points. Number one, trusting in God means that we don't rely upon ourselves to be good enough. But that we believe God is good enough to save us. You have to have a sense of the goodness of God and how he is trying to show us how much he wants you to be with him. Everything that we are reading in the scriptures is to show that he wants his people to be with him. The scriptures would be so short. Your Bibles would be so small if the message was to be with me. You need to be righteous and holy. No one's righteous and holy. End of story. Just, you know, leave it at Genesis 3. (laughs) Just walk around with that. God wants to save. So does that mean we just don't have to do anything? We're all all going because God wants people with them. Now, Abraham is used as an amazing example. We will be transformed 
into the image of his son. Because we want him and nothing else. And we are willing to count all things as trash. Because we grasp the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And when we understand our purpose and who we are, you're not going to want to keep the living the life of sin. One of the greatest motivations of putting sin to death, one of the greatest motivations of putting sin to death is for us to see the mercy of God. There is no other way to truly put sin to death until we see the glory, majesty, greatness, and mercy of God. And let me end with this one. If we don't live for Jesus, then we don't trust him. If we don't live for him, we don't trust him. And I'm still trying to live to my own level of righteousness. I'm good enough. I'm not that bad. It's only the really bad people who've got problems. We will come up with some level and we'll come up with some lie. When Christ comes to us and says, now live righteously. It is in view of what he's going to do for you. It is trying to show us a beauty of what he is going to accomplish for us. You cannot get your way there. Christ is going to die for you so that you will be putting sin to death. So that you will change the way you live your life. So that you will follow him with all of your heart because you will see the surpassing worth of him. That sin has no value to your life anymore. You won't want to do those things anymore. You're going to get rid of those things that are holding you down. Those sins that are holding back your holiness. Because you see what God has done for you. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father. Lord. It is hard, it is so hard to understand how you could be so merciful and loving to us. Lord, you demand holiness. Because you are pure and right. And Lord, we are nowhere near that. And Lord, thank you for sending your son so that if we would give our lives completely to you and trust you, you would count us as righteous. 
Lord, we understand that we are so undeserving of your grace. We are so undeserving of eternity. We are undeserving of a relationship with you. Lord, how could you promise that you would want to be with us for all eternity when we are such wretched sinners? Lord, thank you for showing us in the scriptures how holy and right you are. And thank you for showing us through your laws how woefully short we fall from doing what you want us to do. And Lord, it is our prayer that the love that we see through your son will radically change our hearts and transform us to live lives for you. Lord, there are sins in all of our lives in which Satan continues to tempt us and attack us. And Lord, we pray for strength to turn away from sins as we look at the glory of your son. As we look at the mercy that you have shown to us, help us to be strengthened to see the emptiness of this world and the emptiness of sin and the vanity of chasing after our passions and lusts. And Lord, we pray that as we continue to look at your son, that our hearts will be transformed so that we could be living sacrifices to you that live holy and acceptable lives. Help us to be transformed each day. Help us to be the servants you want us to be. Change our hearts. Change our tongues. And change our lives. And Lord, help us to strive for holiness. As we seek you with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I hope you'll think about where you are in your relationship with God. The challenge of righteousness is so convicting. But the good news is he'll count you righteous if you'll give your life to him. That's an amazing offer. And I hope that we would never turn away from that offer. Please think about the amazing offer. You cannot get yourself righteous enough to be with God. But if you'll just give your life to me, You'll just turn away from sin and see the surpassing worth of who I am because I want to be with you. Throw those sins off to the side and you can have eternity with him anyway. You can be counted righteous and that's going to be a glorious thing. Can you imagine having to stand before God and it be on the basis of your own works? want that neither do you but imagine standing before God and knowing that you have an advocate in Christ who's died for your sins so that you can be counted righteous because you trusted your life to him we want you to do that today would you turn away from sin and give your life to Jesus with all of your heart won't you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing